we're in John chapter 3, uh, verse 16, which is where I want to begin, is really a follow-up to what the Lord's uh, discussion with Nicodemus, which we spent all of last week uh, dealing with. And so if you look at that first word in verse 16 of John chapter 3, it's for, F-O-R. I normally don't do this, but I think it's important to do it here. That's a very important structural marker in, in the text. And now um, I don't want to get into grammar and bore you with grammar, but in this case, I think it's important to do that. Uh, the very last part of verse 15, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world. So what, what verse uh, 16 is doing is giving a reason for why you may have eternal life if you believe in the Son of Man who is lifted up and so on, which is what verse 15 is all about. So there's a very important grammatical connection between verse 16 and the last part of verse 15. I hope you're following me. One other comment about the verse before we uh, dig into it. Uh, some of your translations will have quotation marks that begin with verse 16, and some of them will not. There is quite a debate, uh, maybe a better word, a discussion, among New Testament exegetes about whether verse 16 continues the words of Jesus to Nicodemus or whether verse 16 begins a theological commentary by John, the writer, on what Jesus has been saying to Nicodemus. To, to the degree it's that important, my view is that this is probably a theological reflection. It's not necessarily Jesus continuing his, his talk with Nicodemus. It's like a reflection, a, an explanation, theologically, of what really Jesus was saying to Nicodemus. So why is the gift of eternal life available? For, because, God so loved the world. Now, I believe we commented on this last week. Let me emphasize it again. That, that is almost a shocking statement for a Jew at, in A.D. 30, which is probably the year in which Jesus utters these words, to hear. Because their entire worldview, their entire understanding was that God loved the Jews. God's covenant relationship was with the Jews. So to hear God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then whoever matches with world, meaning it's available to everybody. It's available to all people. And so verse 16, for a Jew in AD 30, would have been shocking to hear. It shouldn't have been, because if you go all the way back to Genesis 12, 3, the first articulation of the Abrahamic covenant, God said to Abraham, in you, all the nations will be blessed. And that, that theme is developed throughout the Old Testament. But the typical Jewish person in first century did not think that way. They were extreme nationalists. They were very ethnocentric. They believed that they had the inside track. 
And they didn't particularly care about anyone outside of that tract, which we will see in the next chapter when Jesus talks to a Samaritan woman. So I just want to emphasize, this is a very familiar verse. Most believers have it memorized. But I'm trying to get you to understand, and, and it's not that difficult, but understand why this truth that, that, that is being explained in verse 16 is a revolutionary, radical thought for a first century Jewish person about AD 30 to process. God so loved the world, the measure of his love is that he gave his only son. And again, we talked about that way back at the beginning of our study of John. That's a very unique word, and ESV really nails it. They translate it properly. His only son, the unique only son of God, that he gave his son. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 9, uh, we often hear that sung over Christmas with Messiah, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Exactly the same language. It's in Hebrew, but it's exactly the same concept that's in the Greek. So God gives his son. And then the intended result is that whoever believes, just like verse 14 and 15, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, and whoever believes may have eternal life. So it's exactly the same thought. Whoever believes in him shall not perish in eternal judgment, but shall have eternal life. This is exclusive. This is what makes the 21st century postmodern, post-Christian world very uncomfortable. Because verse 16 is declaring something exclusive. The path to eternal life is through faith in Jesus. Not faith in Allah, not faith in Siddhartha Buddha, not faith in Nagurna Brahman of Hinduism. It is Jesus. And so this very familiar verse tied to verse 14 and 15, which we studied last week, is giving us a theological reflection on what Jesus had said. The reason God did this is because he loves the world. And his measure of his love, as Isaiah 9 said, is he gives his son. And whoever believes does not perish in eternal judgment, but has eternal life. And so this, this wonderful verse as it is unpacked, reminds us of the exclusive truth of the gospel. It is Jesus plus nothing. There's nothing else that's needed. And, and so this wonderful verse that, again, almost every Christian knows and most have memorized, needs to be understood in the context of John chapter 3 as a follow-up to the Lord's discussion with Nicodemus. All right, are you with me? Yes, uh, okay. Jim. Uh, yes, Woody. Um, yeah, that uh, that's pretty special that it's available to us also as well as the Jews, and uh, right. that is a good key point. I, I would ask you. Uh, I'm asking you this for a, a question for uh, Lyle Jones. Uh, he doesn't have audio 
figured out yet, and I didn't either when I was on the phone. But he's had trouble with his computer or his uh, his internet, and uh, he wanted to know if you could embellish about uh, verse thirteen, uh, okay, a little bit. Uh, and he asked about Elisha and another somebody that was taken up into heaven. Enoch. Probably Enoch in, in Genesis 5. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Is, is his question, uh, no one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Um, is he is he saying does that exclude Enoch and and Elijah or no? He was wondering. Uh, he was wondering if that was correct that that those two went to heaven without death. Um, yeah, yes, um, both Elijah and Enoch were taken to heaven uh, directly and did not die physically. Um, th that raises some other questions that I, at this point I'd, I'd prefer not to try to get into. Uh, but that's th the point Jesus is making here in verse 13 flows out of what he said in 12. I have told you earthly things and you did not believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And so Jesus, Jesus is, is saying something there about his person. I am the Son of Man, as I've told you before, that's Daniel 7.13. I am the Son of Man, and I am here to tell you heavenly things. I'm here to explain to you, as a revelation of God, uh, eternal heavenly things, and I will ascend back into heaven, but I have descended to earth, descended from heaven, as a revelation of God, the Father, to explain to you eternal heavenly things. Elijah and Enoch were taken to heaven directly by God, but they did not come back to earth to reveal the eternal heavenly things that they saw, experienced as a revelation of God. Jesus is the Son of Man who has descended from heaven. He's here, in, in terms of, of this with Nicodemus, to explain the things of God. He is the revelation of God. And so that's, again, Woody and... and, and uh, uh, Lyle, that you, you, he was asking a question that, that really is, is focusing on the uniqueness of Jesus. He's not like Enoch or Elijah. Oh, he yes. has come from heaven to explain and reveal heavenly things to the earthly human race. They need this final revelation of God. Does that explain it? That, that explains it pretty well to me. I hope it does it for Lyle. Okay, well, if, if he well, has, look it up. No. <laughs> well, he can email me if he has some additional questions. I'd be happy to interact with him by email. Okay, I think he's on the phone today, right now. So oh, okay. I'm okay. sure he heard that explanation. All right. All right. Good.
Let's move on now to verse 17. But have eternal life. Now, I want you to notice again, there's a word that begins verse 17, for. It's exactly the same word as in verse 16. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. So that for is one of explaining, explaining further what he means in verse 16. And this is really important. The Son of God did not come to the world, as we just looked at in verse 13 in answer to Lyle's question. He did not come to earth to condemn the world. The message of Jesus Christ is not a message of condemnation. It's a message of salvation. As he's going to explain in verse 16, or in verse 18, 19, and 20, the world already stands condemned. It has rejected God's revelation. It stands condemned. So the Lord's message, the Father sent the Son not to deliver a message of condemnation. It is already condemned. It's a message of salvation. And so you, you were reminded of this profoundly in verse 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This further explains the love of God, which is the beginning of verse 16. The Father sent the Son not to condemn the world, but to save the world, to offer salvation to the world. And that is important for you and me to remember because we are the ambassadors of the grace of God. We are the ambassadors of the gospel. Our message is not a message of condemnation. Our message is a message of salvation. We represent the Savior. God will take care of the judgment. God will determine and decide when and how and the details of judgment at the great white throne. Our message is a message, there's another way to live your life. There's another way for you to deal with all of the things you're dealing with. And the guilt and defeat that you are feeling and experiencing, you don't have to live that way. And I'm just reminded, and that is so powerful to remember, verse 16 and 17 together. Then verse 18, 19, explain what this, this, this condemnation means. What does he mean by that? Whoever believes in him, meaning Jesus, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. And the this is about to be explained. The this is what follows the word judgment. It's explained. It's a monster pronoun. And it's explained this way. The light has come into the world. And people love darkness rather than light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, has not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So, Again, this is terribly difficult, but make sure this is clear to you. What the Lord is saying here is, what Jesus is, is declaring here, 
and what John is, is, is stating here is that the message is not a message of condemnation. It's a message of salvation because the world already stands condemned. What does he mean by that? The light has come into the world, and that people love darkness is an evidence that they're already condemned. And those who do wicked things hate the light, lest their works should be exposed. The light is, Jesus will say, I am the light of the world. The metaphor for the revelation of God is light and so on. So to, to stay away from the light, to stay away from the revelation of God, to stay away from the truth about God, to stay away from all of the, the, the wonderful things that Jesus represents, and so on, all of that, all of that, what Jesus is saying, you stay away from that. Because as you come close to the light, you come close to the revelation of God, you come close to the truth of who Jesus is, and so on. Their deeds are exposed for what they are, the shame and the conviction and the guilt. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works that have been carried out have been carried out in God. Not in yourself, but in God. And so it's a, it's a tremendous affirmation of the truth of, of who Jesus is and that his message and all his de the details of what he's, what he's representing is not condemnation, but a message of salvation. Okay, any questions? Yes, I have uh, one what is the difference between believes in him and did not believe in his name? His name versus him without the name attached. Is that significant? Well, I, everything's significant. <laughs> yes, I mean, I, 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 think it, I think it is because the name, uh, and this is really consistently true throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament, um, the name of Jesus, the name of Yahweh, the name of Adonai, the name of the Son of God reveals who he is and reveals what he has done. So to not believe in the name of the only Son of God, to not believe that he is the Son of God, to not believe in his completed finished work, to not believe in everything about him, is to reject him. So the name of the only Son of God, it's everything that that represents, everything that that entails, because that is part of uh, the revelation of God. And you know, so in rejecting his name, you're rejecting everything he stands for, everything that that title, that that name represents. Jim, I have a question for you. Those who reject are knowingly rejecting Jesus Christ as the Son of God. It's not like they don't know who he is, would you say? Can you embellish that somewhat? Yes. Uh, your, your question is actually, um, there's a level 
of complication to it. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to decide how much I want to get into. Um, there are many people, uh, there are many people in the world who have heard of the name Jesus. If you're a Muslim, you have heard the name Jesus. The name Jesus is in the Quran. But the, as the Quran talks about Jesus, it's not explaining revelatory truth about Jesus. So to reject Jesus in the Quran is to reject Jesus as a prophet that is lower and less important than Allah. But to reject Jesus as revealed in the Bible, you have to deal with his titles, his claims, his works, and his words. And so you are rejecting, and that's what part of my response to Russ's question was, to, to reject his name, the name of the only Son of God, is everything he represents, everything he's done, everything he said. And so you are therefore willfully and intentionally rejecting everything about the name of the Son of God. But there are also people on planet Earth in 2020 who have never heard the name Jesus. And yet they are still rejecting, they are still rejecting the revelation of God. Well, to what are they then accountable? Well, they've been exposed to God's revelation as creation, God's revelation in terms of his, uh, the, his revelation in human conscience, and, and therefore, because human conscience reveals that, his moral law. But they've never been exposed to Jesus. Now, that's why your question for me to answer is really not an easy question to answer. I, I understand. So how, how would, what characteristic following your answer, Jim, would, would uh, conscience, what, what is conscience in terms of how you're laying it out? What is conscience? Yes. Is that your word, your question? Yes. Uh-huh. Well, um, uh, a, a wonderful passage to look at is in, in Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and, and following. In that passage, Paul uses the word witness, that conscience is a witness of God. It's a witness of his revelation. And it is an innate sense, an innate conviction of what is right and what is wrong. And uh, Paul says, and other parts of God's word deal with that too, that God puts his law on our conscience. And, and what they mean by it, what he means by that is that that sense of what is right, that conviction of what is right and what is wrong. There are standards that God has revealed. And among other um, among other places, one can look at is conscience. It is it is a revelation of God. But in a, in a little child, you can really see that in a little child. But the Bible speaks, and this this is also very, I think, very easy for us to understand in terms of our experience, but it's also very easy to see as it's documented in the Bible. We harden our conscience. Our conscience becomes hardened so that it no longer functions the way God wants it to function. And so, I mean, that's why you and I, who represent Jesus, 
part of our task and part of our responsibility is to tell the story of Jesus to the world so that everybody gets to hear the final and complete revelation of God, which is in Jesus. But they still are accountable for the previous three revelations, which they have already rejected. A Muslim has rejected the revelations about God. And they are rejecting the revelation of, uh, about Jesus because they are not allowed to read the New Testament. Uh, for, at least most of them aren't. And they, their whole view of Jesus is a distorted, warped view of Jesus because that's how the Quran prints Jesus. It presents Jesus as a prophet, not as the Son of God, not as a Savior who dies a substitutionary death on the cross. And so you're not getting the correct story of Jesus. Buddhism has a Jesus, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible. Hinduism looks at Jesus as a great guru. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. All right, I'm going to just leave that now lying on the table, okay? Thank you. Let me, let me, let me just comment one more time, and, and then I want to move on to verse 22. This is a powerful, powerful message for you and me to make sure we understand. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world, verse 17. Hence, as a corollary to that, our message, as we represent Christ, is not a message of condemnation. I, it, it, it isn't particularly a good evangelistic tool to walk up to a person and say, you're going to hell, and fire and brimstone are going to destroy you. Come to Jesus. That may work, but for the most part, that's not a real good strategy. Because most people need to meet Jesus where they are. They're hurting, their defeat, their guilt, whatever it is. And that Jesus solves that. And so it's just really important for me personally, as a minister of the gospel, as well as a teacher, to make sure we apply these powerful words to, to how we do evangelism and how we talk about the message of the gospel. Because Jesus says the world's already condemned. And how do you know it's condemned? They stay away from the truth, the light. They stay away from it because it'll be exposed. The shame and guilt and conviction will be exposed. They stay away from it. And Jesus is saying that is the evidence that they're already condemned. And I mean, I've, I've, I've led a lot of people to Christ in my life. I, I've, I've ministered to a lot of people in my life. And I've seen that over and over and over again. Guys come to Jesus when they have hit bottom, crashed on through the bottom. They have no other option. They de there's just no other way to deal with the things in their life. But on their way down, they don't want anything to do with Jesus. They don't have anything to do with the light. They don't have anything to do with truth. Because the moment you come exposed to truth, it shows the shame and guilt and conviction of your condemnation. Jesus offers a way out of that, and that's our message. All right, let's move into verse 22. Now, this is a different, a different situation. This is the Judean ministry of Jesus. John's gospel tells us it's the only one of the Gospels that does this. Tells us about the first year of Jesus' public ministry was in Judea. The last two years of Jesus' public ministry in Galilee. 
So we're still in Judea. After this, meaning after his meeting with Nicodemus, Jesus and disciples went into the Judean countryside. Remember, Judea is in the south. You can look on, I've given you several maps in your packet. You can see Judea is that Roman province. that became a Roman province in AD 6. This is not Galilee. This isn't Samaria. This is Judea. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. Now, please note that. Jesus is baptizing. In chapter 4, verse 2, we'll see that next week. Actually, Jesus' disciples are baptizing, and Jesus is kind of overseeing that. What kind of baptism? This is John's baptism, the baptism of repentance, getting ready for the work of the Messiah. John also, now that's John the Baptist, verse 23, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim. Now, if you look on your map on page four, if you're interested in this, I mean, I'm not going to spend much time on it, but I gave you a map of John the Baptist's ministry in page four of your note packet, and you can see Anon and Salim. You can see where John was baptizing along the Jordan River Valley, because there was plenty of water there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. John will be arrested by Herod Antipas, but that's coming up. So this is an extraordinary, often not well-known part of Jesus' Judean ministry. He's baptizing in the Jordan too. What John was doing, Jesus was doing. Baptizing of repentance to prepare people for the way of coming of Messiah. Now verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, and a Jew over purification. We're not, we don't have the name of this person, this Jew, we don't know who it is, but a discussion. Now, what does that mean about purification? Because baptism was a form of purification. Jews, even before John the Baptist and Jesus showed up, Jews would baptize themselves. They would dip themselves in pools. They're, they're called mikvot. And if you ever go to Jerusalem and all around Temple Mount, there are literally dozens of mikvahs. They're purification pools. So presumably, this Jewish man is talking to the disciples of John the Baptist and said something like this, is what your guy, John the Baptist, doing purification? Is it like what we do in Jerusalem? Is it like the mikvah pools? Is that what he's doing? And they came to John and said, Rabbi, now, this is John's disciples coming to John the Baptist, rabbi, teacher. He who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. So again, you have John's disciples are witnessing Jesus baptizing, and more and more people are going to Jesus. Verse 27, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, meaning I'm not the Messiah. I have been sent before him. Verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom, 
the friend of the bridegroom stands and hears him, rejoicing greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And before I look at verse 30, understand what John is saying. His disciples are jealous. His disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, are upset. Hey, John, everybody's following this guy you baptized. We're upset about that. And John said, listen, I'm not upset about that. This, this has come from heaven. This is God's Messiah. You bear witness. I've told you over and over again, I'm not the Messiah. I've sent, I've sent before him. I'm like the friend of the bridegroom. He's the bridegroom. And every Jew hearing John the Baptist saying that would understand. Throughout the Old Testament, Isaiah 62, Jeremiah 2, Hosea 2, Israel is called the bride of God. And the bridegroom is the Savior. So Jesus is the Savior. He's the bridegroom. And that theme is consistent through the New Testament. Jesus is called the bridegroom. His church is the bride. And John's the friend of the bridegroom. It's like he's the best man. And I'm rejoicing in this. I am excited about this. My joy is complete. Therefore, verse 30, verse 30, he must increase, I must decrease. My work is nearly finished. I've been cutting the path for him. I've been introducing him. I'm like the best man of the bridegroom in a wedding. And I'm thrilled and excited that more and more people are following him. That's what this is all about. So guys, get with the program. Don't let jealousy and, and envy invade your perspective of what's happening. This is from heaven. This is God's plan. We're all been a part of this plan. But the culmination things is upon us. He's the bridegroom. And I'm the friend of the bridegroom. And I am really excited. Okay, got it? I have a question. Yeah. This, this is probably, this is a grammar uh, thing. It says, he must increase, but I must increase. Why but there versus and or so? Russ, I'm not understanding your question. He, okay. must, in, he must increase, but I must decrease. Yeah, and What's your question about the grammar if, of that? If I the word but, yes. why why the word but as objects as opposed to he must increase um and I must in, decrease or without yeah. the conjunction altogether, he must increase, I must decrease. Why yeah. but? Yeah, I, I think it the, the but there's a strong adversative. Um and this is for his disciples. John the Baptist's disciples, he must increase. But as he increases, concomitant with that, at the same time, I'm decreasing. So, so is this like Jewish, 
Is this like a Jewish poetry like that we see well, in it, Proverbs it, where there's a juxtaposition? Yeah, I, th I think so. I mean, it's, 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 it's a strong contrast. And the contrast is, as Jesus is increasing in his influence, I'm decreasing. And those, that contrast, don't miss that. Mm -hmm. That is part of God's plan. He increases, but I decrease. And I'm okay with that. It's, in other words, um, it's, it's, John is understanding that his work is almost done. He's really, he's beginning to process this, and he sees more and more people following Jesus. So he must increase. That's the plan. Right. But I must decrease. That's the plan. And the contrast between the two is what is marked, what is clear, and what's distinctive. It's there, I you guys need to understand that. I feel there's something more there. You know, it's, I, if it was rendered, you know, as he increases, I must decrease, using as to say we're on the same team. Of course, they're going to go over to him because we're on the same team. And the, the I just, yeah, I'm, it might proceed. be saying that his work is nearly finished. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that, well, Woody, I think you're right. I mean, it's, it's the focus is, is on Jesus and get your eyes off me, but I must, de because I must decrease. And, and as he is increasing, but I must decrease. That's the plan. And my work is almost done. So I'm not going to increase along with Jesus, or I'm not going to know as he increases, but I must decrease. That's the plan. And I'm okay with that. All right. I think I think one of the things that's kind of interesting, it was said, but I don't know that it was comprehended uh, by them as, as we would find out later. And I think that's maybe kind of an interesting part of our lives as Christians, as we walk this life, that there are certain things we don't get that are truths, but it takes us a while to understand it as God reveals that as we live our lives out, perhaps. What, um, well, I think you can, you can apply verse 13 to our lives as believers as an example, not an example, illustration, as an illustration of the sanctifying process. It's an illustration of sanctification. Yeah. You come good. to Jesus Christ, you're everything. You are the center of your universe. You're on the throne of your life. You come to faith in Christ because you, you realize your sin problem and all the things that we've talked about, and Christ solves that. Then you begin to understand, and you begin to apply, and you begin to embrace the process. This sanctification work is he must increase, but I must decrease. And this in Galatians 2.20, yet not I, but Christ. Yet not I, but Christ. Yet not I, but Christ. That he is increasing, but I am decreasing. It is no longer about me. It's about Jesus. And that's why verse 30 is often used, although John the Baptist is talking about it in the context of something happening along the Jordan River in Judea. It does really satisfactorily summarize the process of sanctification. This isn't about salvation. This isn't about justification. 
This is about the sanctifying process. It's about him increasing and I must decrease. It is no longer about me. It's about Jesus. Now, verse 31 and following, this is, you got to really track here with me. This is a little difficult. But John gives us why. Why must he increase, but I must decrease? It's about the person and nature and character of the one who must increase. That is about Jesus. He who comes from above is above all. He just said in verse 27, he has been given unless it's given from heaven. Jesus has talked about, I have come from heaven. I am the only son of the father. So he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. The second time he's repeated that. So John is contrasted. I am of earth. I'm a human being. Jesus is from heaven. He's the son of God. He's the God-man, the second person of the Trinity, adding to his deity humanity. He's from above. And because he is above all, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with him from the beginning. He's from above. It's a summary of his sovereignty. It's a summary of his authority. That's the reason he must increase, but I must decrease. It's because of who he is. It's because of his person. It's because of his nature. It's because of where he has come from. Verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. That's the echo again of what's in John 1, 1 through 18. Jesus is here to talk about, to explain, to exegete eternal things. What's the Father like? What's God like? What's eternity like? What's heaven like? Jesus is explaining, he's bearing witness to what he has seen and what he's heard. He's bearing witness of eternal things. And John is saying, I can't do that. I'm from earth. I'm a human being. I've never been to heaven. I've never seen eternal things. But he has because he's come from heaven. That's what the incarnation is all about. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. And so John is saying, why must he increase? Because of who he is. Because of his nature. And whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. And so John, this is John the Baptist now, in verse 33, whoever receives his testimony, receives decamai, welcomes, embraces that testimony, sets his seal to this, God is true. God is not a liar. God's revelation in Jesus is true. John 1, 1 through 18. And it's true. It isn't a lie. It isn't false. It's not a half-truth. It's true. 
and you, you, you can bank on it, put your seal to it. It's true. Then verse 34 and 35, John the Baptist alludes, he doesn't directly quote, but he alludes to several Old Testament texts. For God is true, for explaining that, he whom God sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. That is exactly what you read, that the Messiah of God will be filled with the Spirit. And so how do you know that what God is saying is true? Because God has sent his Son who utters the words of God, who's been given the Spirit without measure. Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, is in the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown, stands up to read. He reads from Isaiah 61, verse 1, I have put my Spirit upon him, and then he quotes the rest of the verse. Jesus sits down, what does he say? Today this has been fulfilled in your presence. And then verse 35, continuing to explain what he means by God is true. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. That is an allusion to Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. And Yahweh, in Psalm 110, verse 1, Yahweh said to Adonai, Here, sit at my right hand, as I put everything under your authority. And so he's alluding to two phenomenally important Old Testament messianic texts to validate and prove that God is true, and Jesus is giving a truthful testimony to eternal things, what he has seen and what he has heard. And then John concludes in verse 36, a major message of this gospel. Whoever believes in this Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. What we've just studied in John chapter 3, 17 and following. The world is already condemned. The object of God's wrath already. So John has given a increase, but I must decrease. Because of who he is. That final authoritative, truthful Revelation of God, fulfilling Isaiah 61, 1, 42, 1, fulfilling Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, and to believe in him. Now, would you notice that verb tense in verse 36? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, not will have, future tense, has. Eternal life begins the moment you put your faith in Christ. You have eternal life. And so John, it's really quite, quite powerful, actually, what he's saying here. Whew, yeah, I'm all warm. Aren't you glad for this heat? I'm not. As I often say, this is why we like winter. Amen? Boy, nobody's amen in that. So, uh, well, it's a matter of sanctification. You'll well, come there. to understand. I'm right there with you. Amen. Dr. Eckman, I have a question. Yes, sir. Um, 
I've got the NIV Bible. Yes. Yes. And beginning with, with verse 31 through 36, it's, it's not in quotations. Uh, and, and, and the wording and the phrasing there seems to me that's more likely that it was John the Apostle's words there than... That's than probably, you're, you're probably correct. Okay. That, that's John, John's commentary on, on what does it mean he must be good <laughs> but yes. but uh, I it just occurred to me uh, John John the Baptist stopped he must become greater I must become less yes so anyway I just wondered uh, there are different interpretations well there are but I, I think you're probably right there 31 through 36 is John's commentary okay and he's explaining what John the Baptist meant by he must increase, but I must decrease. Yeah. Okay. Thank All right. You. All right. Good. Now let's begin. What time is it? Uh, well, we have a few more minutes yet. Let's begin chapter four of John. We will never finish this, but we'll get it started. Now, let me repeat something I said just a moment ago. John, in his gospel, which we're studying, gives us a brief summary of Jesus' ministry in Judea. That's what we've been studying in chapter 2 and then chapter 3, part of chapter 2 and now chapter 3. Jesus is going to begin to move out of Judea, and he's going to start to head north to Galilee. Now, if you, would, if you want to, again, you don't have to do this, but if you would take a look at the map that I provided for you on page five of your note, uh, your note packet. The only reason I, I say that, if you take a look at that, it helps you. It helps you. It. I know this doesn't matter because you're not going to see it very clearly, but it helps you to see the three regions on page five of the packet. You see Judea in green. You see Samaria in purple, and then you see Galilee. In, I guess that's kind of a pink, and that that's really important to always to always kind of have in your mind the clarity of the geography. Judea is in the south, Galilee is in the north, and in between is Samaria. Now, I want to make sure that there is something that's crystal clear, or you're not going to get the importance of chapter four at all. Jesus is in Samaria. He is going to go from Judea right through Samaria. And I'll explain why that was unusual in just a minute. But why did Jews not like Samaria? Why did Jews not like the Samaritans who lived in Samaria? A couple of things that are important for you and me to understand. The Samaritans that lived in Samaria were the result after the Assyrian Empire conquered Israel in 722 BC, they moved a lot of foreigners from the empire into this area, and the Jews and these foreigners intermarried. And so the result, and this is what the Jews said, were half-breeds. So the Jews in Galilee or the Jews in Judea did not look at the Samaritans as equal. They looked at them, they looked down their nose at them, they said they're half-breeds. They did not believe in, in anything they said or anything they taught. They totally rejected the Samaritans. 
And therefore, a Jew in the first century would not go through Samaria. They would walk up the King's Highway, which is in the mountains of Jordan to the east, or they would walk up the, the Amaris, the wall, the walk, excuse me, the roadway right along the coast of the Mediterranean. They would stay away from Samaria. The other thing about the Samaritans is they read the Old Testament. They read the first five books of the Old Testament, but they did not worship in Jerusalem. They worshiped in Gerizim, Mount Gerizim. I'll point that out. It'll probably be next week. So they worshiped, they offered sacrifices, they read parts of the Old Testament, but they rejected Jerusalem, they rejected the sacrifices in Jerusalem, and they rejected the entire teachings about the Messiah coming to the Jews. They had their own Messiah, they called it the Techeb. So the, the Samaritans were half-breeds as far as the Jews were concerned, and they didn't want anything to do with them. They were unclean. They didn't want anything to do with them. So Jesus, in chapter 4, is going to make the decision to intentionally, willfully walk through Samaria. Look at verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, parenthesis, although Jesus himself did not baptize, only his disciples, Jesus was just supervising that. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So Jesus wants to avoid some of the controversy. He wants things to die down, so he decides to leave Judea. Verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. That is a very unusual way to put this. Because, honestly, he didn't have to go through Samaria. He could have gone up the King's Highway, which is through the mountains of Jordan to the east, or could he, he could have walked the Via Mars, the international highway right along the Mediterranean coast. He didn't have to go through Samaria, except he had a divine appointment there. And so John puts it in his account of this, this was the Father's will for the Son. He had to go through Samaria. So, verse 5, he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, and you can, in the map that I've given you on page 5, you can see it. It's almost right in the center of the map. It's right across the border between Judea and Samaria. Now, why Sychar? Well, it was near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. You can go back to Genesis 48, verse 22, to see that. Jacob's well was there. And by the way, if you and I could get on a plane, which probably wouldn't be a good idea right now, and fly to Israel, which probably would not be a good idea right now, because everything's shut down there. But if we could go, I could take you to Jacob's well. I could show it to you. It's still there. We know exactly where this was. It's still a source of water. It's in Palestinian Authority territory, but you can still go there. I've been there. So Jacob's well was there. Weary as he was from his journey, he was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. It's about noon. It's lunchtime. 
So this is extraordinary. Here's the God-man, fully God, fully man. Undiminished deity plus perfect humanity united in one person. He's been walking from the Jordan River quite a few miles. He crosses into Samaria. He sits down at Jacob's well. He's thirsty. He's tired. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, this is really important. Do not miss this. It's noon. As you know, they did not have running water. They didn't have modern plumbing. So every morning, the women, this was normally the responsibility, the women of the town would go to the wells outside the town, fill their pots with water, and go back to town. They'd have their water for the day. Why is this woman coming at noon? Because this woman is an immoral woman, perhaps a prostitute. She has, as Jesus will say, she's had many, many husbands. So this is a woman who's ostracized. This is a woman, all the other women of the community don't want anything to do with her. So she goes to the well alone at a time when no other woman would go in the middle of the day. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. John, this is in parenthesis, for the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, meaning Sychar, that little community. They're there at McDonald's. They're getting, you know, some Happy Meals, and they're going to bring them out to Jesus, and they're going to have a lovely lunch. I'm making that up, but that's why they're not with Jesus. He's alone. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? So this woman, not only because of who she is, and not only because it's the middle of the day, and there are no other people or women around, she is absolutely shocked that this Jew asks her for a drink of water. Then John reminds us, it's in parenthesis, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. As I explained earlier, Samaritans were considered to be unclean, half-breeds, wanting nothing to do with the Samaritan. They detested the Samaritans. So the Lord Jesus Christ is breaking every cultural tradition you could imagine. Jesus is doing everything he should not be doing, according to Jewish tradition and Jewish practice. He's asking this unclean half-breed for a drink of water. And the moment she touches that water, it's unclean. Therefore, he shouldn't take it even if she gives it to him. But Jesus is the Lord. He's Yahweh Elohim. He's the God-man, and he has the right and authority to do whatever he wants to do, because he is going to lead this woman to the Savior. So it's an extraordinary, absolutely unimaginable situation in the first century. In it seems a, in like, Israel. yeah, it seems like this is an example of, for God so loved the world. It is. Regardless exactly of culture lines. It exactly is. That's Beautiful. exactly right. All right, what time is it? Oh my goodness, it's almost 10. Why didn't you tell me I was over time? That's your responsibility. You're supposed to tell me when I'm over time. Woody, you're not doing your job. Oh, we were way too into it. 
Yeah. What's it's that? Only, it's 12.43, Jim. Fred said he'd tell you when it was time. Oh, okay. All right. I have 12.47. Is that not correct? That's Pretty correct. close. Okay, that's close. <laughs> All right. Now, listen, I think I'll stop there because really the next part of their dialogue is it, it, it takes a lot of explaining. This is, a, this is again, is a, a remarkable, astonishing situation. And I, I try to hope I was successful. I tried to give you kind of the, the context in the first century of why this is so astonishing that Jesus is doing this. He had to go through Samaria, and now we find out why. He's to meet this Samaritan woman, this immoral, unclean woman, and he has eternal truth to share with her. And it's an amazing, it's an amazing story. But we'll pick up with this next week. Let's see, I'll start right with verse 10. Okay? All right. Well, thank you, man. Good questions, good discussion, and uh, don't ever be afraid to email me if you have any other follow-up. Let me, uh, let me have a word of prayer here, and then I'll let you go. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Word of God, which is alive, which is like a two-edged sword. It pierces deeply. It cuts. It, it exposes. But it also brings comfort and consolation. And I'm just reminded again, uh, even in the Lord's discussion with Nicodemus and now the discussion with this Samaritan woman, it is evidence of your love for everybody. You want everyone to hear the message. You want everyone to hear about the Lord Jesus. And that's part of our responsibility in 2020. But also, Lord, we're just reminded again that your message is not a message of condemnation. We're going to see this with this Samaritan woman. He doesn't have to tell her she's condemned. She already knows that. He's going to offer her another way to live her life. He's going to offer her salvation. And that's, that's our strategy. That's, that's our goal. So, Lord, help us to be men of faith and men of God who represent you well. I don't know all the needs of the guys. I don't know what special needs there might be, either medical issues or, or mental health issues or physical issues or, or financial issues or spiritual issues or emotional issues, friends, uh, relatives, even extended family. God, you know all of those. We never pray to give you information. You already have that. It's part of our relationship with you, where we take and give all of our burdens to you. So, Lord, I pray for these men. If there are any special needs or special areas, God, meet them according to your perfect will. And as we now go into the rest of our day and the rest of this week, Lord, help us to be your representatives and to represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week. Thank you, Jim. Have a good week. Have a good day. Bye.